All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> yeah so john now that we've got decent audio why don't we start just telling our audience that this will be actualanarchy.com episode 33 where we're going to talk about the aviator with john reed of libertarianism for normal people this can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 33 and uh, robert is here with me john is here with me and john why don't you give us just the elevator speech about what your site is the podcast and uh you have the floor yeah so uh, libertarianism for normal people. We started, uh, me and my co-host Pat Flynn. He is an entrepreneur. Uh, he's an online fitness expert, very successful one. And I was just telling, uh, the boys here at uh, Actual Anarchy that Pat doesn't really have a, um, an outlet to voice his libertarian values. He's a, he's, he's an uh, anarcho-capitalist, but he's also a business owner. So he has to be very conscious of that side of his life, which is a very important side of his life. It's basically his livelihood. So he doesn't voice a lot of political views there. I've known him for about two and a half years, I think it is now. And he, you know, we have a lot of great conversations about libertarianism and anti-government stuff and how wonderful it would be if, you know, the state would just get out of the way. So he really wanted that outlet, uh, which, which inevitably became the Libertarianism for Normal People podcast. And it was pre- it's pretty much like just us. Uh, conversing about the way we view the world in, in terms of our ANCAP viewpoints or libertarian viewpoints. And we try to get out of the weeds of the economics and try to break it down for, to, to the layman for very basic, in very basic terms. So if you're just starting off with libertarianism, if you, if Gary Johnson got you on board, God forbid, and uh, you're not quite ready to make the anarcho step, uh, we hopefully break it down to you in, in terms you can understand and uh, and got a lot of positive feedback so far, so we're happy with it. Yeah, it sounds great. And how far along are you guys? Uh, how many episodes do you have published so far? I think we just published 45 last week, and we're going to publish number 46 this week. Nice. So it's a it's a once-a-week deal. That's what we're trying to follow ourselves we, over here. We've been trying to do two per, but sometimes life gets in the way. We try to record like about four or five episodes every weekend, but that doesn't always work out. And Pat, he's got, his wife is about to have their third child. So it's, it's been even tougher. So we're going to get at least one episode out this week and hopefully two, but uh, we might have to save the second one for next week. So just to make sure that we're, we're putting out content at least once a week. All right. Awesome. And uh, just so you know, we do RSS feed your content onto our site as well. And we have another common link and that is Jameen from India. He's been writing for us and he's been a guest on your uh, show twice now, I believe. Is that right? Yes, twice. Yep. Jameen's really interesting. I met him online on Facebook, I should say, about, I'd say about three years ago. And he's been really interesting. I never met anybody who was a libertarian or anarcho-capitalist in India. Uh, I know that that country has a very socialist kind of history. So it was interesting to kind of get his perspective on how a libertarian in India is kind of spreading the message of liberty. So he's, he's been great to talk to. It's really, 
we'd like to get more libertarians from other countries, but it's it's really interesting, like half a world away, here's a guy fighting for liberty and spreading the message of taxation is theft and that sort of thing. So it's really refreshing to see the that uh, the principles of liberty are really spreading around the world. Yeah, and he was quite literally spreading that recently. Yeah, I saw that, that video. video that he yeah. made. Yeah, he's um he he made a point <clears throat> he made a point to to only tag public roads and 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 properties, no private property, with taxation as theft as the message. I'm just wondering how much the, the Indian government cares about that, so, like whether it's private or public property. I, I just fear they're going to get him one night and throw him into a jail. We're not, we're not going to hear from him for years. Yeah, let's hope now. Let's hope that they just appreciate that someone's putting a fresh coat of paint on something. Yeah, exactly. So, Robert... I was going to ask John about his origin story. I mean, I don't really know enough about the guy. Um, how did you get to being a libertarian? Did you and Pat meet already as libertarians? Or, I mean, how did you how did you come we to being to freedom and stuff like that? Yeah, we were both libertarians by the time we met. You know, when I was, I'm about 20 years older than Pat, unfortunately. So uh, my story is that, you know, back when I was, when I entered in college, I went to Temple University Back, I started back in about 1991. So back then, I was your typical college kid. I was uh, pretty liberal. I was a Democrat at that point. I voted for Bill Clinton, but I was always interested in in Ross Perot. And uh, you know, over the years, I I kind of got more and more disillusioned with politics, especially the Democratic Party. Especially after I learned more and more about economics. My dad was a very conservative fellow. He actually taught economics at, in a night class at the University of Delaware for a little while there. So uh, a lot of my ed- economic education stemmed from interest by talking to him. So over the years, you know, I just, I didn't identify with the Democrat anymore. And I kind of identi- identified with Republicans, but their whole conservative bent, the kind of very uh, Judeo-Christian right-wing thing maybe, maybe kind of turned me off. So I was looking for another outlet, another political outlet. And I think I was actually watching Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher back then, and he described himself as a libertarian. And that kind of caught my interest. And I and I researched what that was. You know, at first it was mostly kind of like the Gary Johnson pitch, where you're fiscally conservative but socially liberal. And I thought, hey, that sounded a lot like me. So, I, you know, I, I learned more about it, and I really considered myself by 1996 a libertarian. I actually voted for Harry Brown that election. When the when the 2000 election came around, I have to say, like, I was so anti-Democrat that I was more on board with George W. Bush, unfortunately, because I thought, hey, here's a Republican president. Here's a Republican Senate and Congress. We haven't had this for like 40 years, so we're going to start repealing all these Democratic uh, policies that have been crippling us economically for all these years. And boy, howdy, did I get a surprise by this 2004 election as we, you know, the deficits ballooned and we got into the Iraq war and this and that, the other thing. And it, you know, I, I just started getting back into my libertarian kind of roots, so to speak. And when Ron Paul came along, that was, that was kind of it for me. I, I was kind of more, mostly on board, full, full fledged with libertarianism. And, you know, over the years, I've just kind of turned from libertarian to minarchist to anarcho-capitalist. So I met Pat in California when we rented a house with a mutual friend we were in wine country and uh, we just got to talking and connected over the after that and over the years have just talked more and more and here we are today with libertarianism for normal people very cool yeah i remember the uh 2000 election and the debates where bush actually ran on a very non-interventionist platform i remember him yep. 
constantly saying that he was, yeah, I just stick, leave everybody else alone and we're going to do our own thing. And that, that whole election just really reinforced the whole lying campaign promises yeah. of, of, of every president ever. But for me, I was really, really listening to that and going, well, that sounds, that sounds really nice. Let's see if he's actually going to do that. And of course, he didn't. And of course he did. Yeah. And then by the 2008, by the 2006, 2007, you know, financial crisis, you expected the, you would hope the Republicans would have said, well, we just got to let the market do its thing and work this out. But no, they were, they were all about bailouts and Wall Street bailouts and stimulus and this and that and the other thing. And yeah, it was by that time when I was, I was like, I, I can't possibly vote Republican again if these guys are going to be Basically, no, no more than Democrats in sheep's clothing, I guess. Yeah, they sure do come together when it's time to spend money. They just exactly. have the same, the same policies. Yeah, it was a real eye-opener, eye and it was more beating the Democrats wasn't as important to me anymore as sticking to principles that I really held dear. And if the Republicans were going to do it, then I had to find some, some other outlet to, to kind of connect with. And, uh, yeah, that was... Even the Libertarian Party kind of did fill that void for a little bit, but you know, as they kept nominating these guys like Bob Barr and then Jerry Johnson and God forbid Bill Wells, it's I I, I really have a problem with that with the Libertarian Party as a political party anymore. So that's kind of what helped precipitate my move toward anarcho-capitalism. Yeah, it reminds okay. me of the H.L. Mencken quote where he said that he's a man of principle and he likes to stick to his. Uh his beliefs, and so he, it makes him wholly unfit for a political office. Exactly, right. Yeah, I couldn't run for office because I'd be too honest and nobody would vote for me. Yeah, it seems like those rare unicorns of, say, a Ron Paul or uh, the thing that uh, Adam Kokesh is talking about doing where he, he it's called non non uh, not for president 2020 because he can't officially yeah, yeah, announce yet or something that. like that. Yeah. But if he so happened to get that elected office, his first order of business would be an executive order shutting down the federal government. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, let's hope he wins and let's hope he sticks to that if he does. Well, he gave us what? Didn't he? He said the first thing. If he he never, if he didn't do that, then we were supposed to kill him. That's what he said. Oh, well, there you go. That's pretty committed. Yeah, that's not a threat. It's he, It's his request. He has asked yeah, was... us to fulfill his wishes if if certain uh, certain events take place. Well, I hope his vice president is more committed to him than he is in that sense. Right. So um, maybe we should uh, get into this movie, guys. What do you think? Yeah, let's get into this movie. Uh, John, was this one that you suggested? And if so, uh, what made you pick it? Yeah, when you when uh, you reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be a part of this, I you know of course you know your your mind immediately goes to something like Atlas Shrugged, but. I didn't know a lot about Howard Hughes other than the Spruce Goose and that he went a little batshit crazy at some point, and I wasn't really sure what that was all about. So I was really interested in hearing his story and uh, like what what he did. I like, for instance, I had no idea he he made movies. Like I had heard of Hell's Angels and I had heard of Scarface, but I didn't I didn't make the connection that he was actually behind those films. So it was really interesting. And then when I watched the film and I saw his his um, his fight against the government and you know his desire to really build TWA and make it kind of this really burgeoning um, international flight kind of airline that really seemed to serve be interested in serving the customer the, the flyer it was it really resonated with me in the sense that this was a guy who was actually fighting the power and the the the, the deck that was stacked up against him to try and and, and stop him in his tracks. 
Yeah, this movie has a very libertarian message from my point of view. Uh, it's really an entrepreneur trying to serve, better serve the customer, and he's exactly. running into roadblocks all along. I mean, from the censorship board when he's trying to get his movies made and yep. distributed to, yeah, uh, Pan Am and uh, One Trip buying essentially Congress to give themselves a de facto monopoly. Yep. Uh, those were, those are the big scenes that really resonated with me. And then, of course, also with his, um, the big scene with, uh, his, his girlfriend's family, that one also. Oh yeah, that's, that's the one that really, I love, I love the one line. We'll get into that, but I love that, that scene in particular. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a feel good scene for me. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Well, we usually start out with the Google description reading, which is oftentimes laughably wrong. So we'll see what it's like here. So this is The Aviator, a 2004 drama biography film of Howard Hughes. This is by Martin Scorsese, and it reads, Billionaire and aviation tycoon Howard Hughes, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is a successful public figure. A director of big-budget Hollywood films such as Hell's Angels, a passionate lover of Hollywood leading ladies Catherine Hepburn and Ava Gardner, both played uh, by Kate Blanchett and Kate Beckinsdale, respectively, and an aviation pioneer who helps build TWA into a major airline. But in private, Hughes remains tormented, suffering from paralyzing phobias and depression. The higher he rises, the farther he has to fall. And that's the description. Not too bad. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah and general and yeah, no big mistakes there. Yeah, I mean, it's super long. It's almost three hours, two hours and 50 minutes. Uh, a lot of good reviews. It looks like Rotten Tomatoes is at 87%, and so was the Google user approval rating. So it did uh, admirably well at the box office, raking in $213.7 million, million U.S. dollars. Oh, it came out on Christmas. How about that? I wonder how Leo felt playing a capitalist. Yeah, it's been, it's been hard for him. Who was very involved in fossil fuels. Yeah, right? Yeah. The guy that uh, yeah consumed a lot of fossil fuels and promoted the use of them. But he, but he really... kind of took that into his own personal life, because doesn't he take a private jet everywhere to talk about global warming? <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. That's true. Yeah, he and his buddy uh, Al Gore, who's got something like a 9,000-square-foot mansion with no solar panels on it, and it costs, I don't know, $500 a day in electricity just to run the lights in that place, something like that. Yeah, but I'm sure he's paying extra taxes for to offset the carbon footprint and all that, right? Yeah, right. I'm sure he's volunteering up, just like Sanders. He's so so generous yeah. with his own money. <laughs> From his third vacation home, he's, he's really fighting the good fight. Yeah, these guys are nothing if not hypocrites. They're, they're easy targets, but yeah, yes. they deserve it. But their religious followers will, will fight for them to the death. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, total cognitive dissonance as well, just totally denying any facts or realities of economics, things like that. Uh, it's it's quite a sight to behold. I have to digress, but I mean, after you find out that Bernie Sanders earned a million dollars, paid 13% in taxes, bought a third vacation home, Al Gore has this huge place with, with no solar panels, you think you'd start to question the, the, the kind of religious faith you've been adhering to for all this time, but I guess not. Yeah, don't shoot the messenger, John. Jeez, their message is important. I guess I'm being too critical. Oh, man. All right, well, I'm going to read a little bit of the plot and then start showing uh, some of the slide deck images that our Patreon folks will be able to view. Uh, so the plot starts in uh, 1913 Houston. Nine-year-old Howard Hughes' mother gives him a bath and warns him about the recent cholera outbreak in Houston and says, you're not safe. Fourteen years later, he begins to direct the film Hell's Angels and hires Noah Dietrich to manage the day-to-day operations of his business empire. After the release of The Jazz Singer, the first partially talking films, 
Hughes becomes obsessed with shooting his film realistically and decides to convert the movie to a sound film. Despite the film being a hit, Hughes remains unsatisfied with the end result and orders the film to be recut after its Hollywood premiere, and he becomes romantically involved with actress Catherine Hepburn, who helps to ease the symptoms of his worsening obsessive-compulsive disorder. I feel like that jumped yeah. around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so actually I, I made a few notes during that first part. Well, first of all, like the quarantine kind of jumped out at me. And in particular, though, his mother says, uh, you've seen the signs on the houses of the Negroes. And just kind of like they, they didn't say it specifically, but was, were the, was the quarantine state imposed or was that, you know, a voluntary quarantine by the people who didn't want to get others sick? They didn't really get that. But the, but the fact that, you know, she says the signs on the houses of the Negroes makes me think that it might have been like a state imposed quarantine, making sure that they knew that where the, where the cholera was and who had it, and in particular, the, the, the people of color back then. Mm. Uh-huh. I wouldn't put it past him, especially in that era. Right. Uh, and also um, the, the fact that he was making movies and he kind of created his fortune. They, they say, you know, he has a reputation for being an oil man, but actually it was it was the drill bits that made him his money, um, which kind of jumped out at me because, again, we're talking about Leo, who's a big global warming uh, alarmist. And uh, he's, he's portraying a guy who, you know, in some way, uh, made his billions or millions from uh, from oil in one way or the other. So uh, it's, apparently he had no moral qualms about portraying this man. You know, there's a great lesson for capitalism right there that for money, you can overcome any of your prejudices, right? Exactly. So like, even though he's not a fan of oil, he'll still portray an oil guy to uh, earn a living. You know, yeah. money doesn't doesn't see color. It's not racist and, and all of that. Uh, and it also reminds me of our our buddy uh, Matt Damon, who denounces having firearms in the hands of private individuals, but nine out of his, you know, 90% of his movies, he's firing a gun. Yeah, doesn't he do a series of films that kind of involves weaponry of some sort? Yeah, yeah I think most of his films. I mean, other than Goodwill Hunting, and, and I can't even think of another one where he's not going around shooting people. Uh, but even Goodwill Hunting, he's a very violent guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, lots of fistfights and lots of uh, altercations in that one. Yeah. So anyway, I digress. That was just a little bit of a a play on the uh, the concept of in in a marketplace, racism really doesn't have a factor. I mean, you're there to satisfy a consumer. You're there to to make money. So uh, Dave Smith made made this point in uh, Lions of Liberty podcast I listened to recently, where he was like, "Hey, you know, he, I'm Jewish, and um, uh, my sworn enemy will come pick me up and drive me across town, and we exchange a few bucks, and he says, have a good day.' I say the same, and you know, that's capitalism." Yeah, that's the uh, that's the observation that Voltaire made when he traveled from Paris to London, where Paris was like a a very walled off monarchical hellhole where people were there was like a murder at least one every night, and he went into London where Jews and Muslims were working together, you know, people who would never get along in any other aspect, but they all wanted to make money and they all had a a, a mutual interest in in making like a financial gain. So uh, London was one of the most you know congealed culturally congealed kind of places at the time, and it was all because there was a free, basically a free market in London. All right. Thanks for bringing in some, like, <laughs> Renaissance-style history or, or oh, Age of Enlightenment history here. You're going to here. into any conversation, then what good are you? You know, we're <laughs> going to bring you back for swingers. <laughs> awesome. I love swingers. All right. What's, what's next on your list of notes there, John? I think you've got a stack of notes, and so does Robert. So we'll just play yeah, off that for uh, a little bit before we jump forward. The innovations he made uh, to make sure that he could get the shots he wants, 
you know, the, the cameras on the planes while he was filming Hell, Hell's Angels, I thought it was really indicative of the fact that, you know, entrepreneurs, they find solutions in order to, uh, you know, accomplish their goals and, and give the public what they really want. And plus, I thought it was really interesting, the scene with, uh, with Noah Dietrich, how Noah just like that, this jumps out at me as like an anarcho-capitalist, how Dietrich negotiated his own salary right there during that walk, and he didn't really need to join a union to do it. Howard Hughes doubled his salary right there, and uh, there was no negotiation really, like no contract, no union involved, and it was just two guys working it out together. Yeah, wasn't he just saying like, hey, what do you make right now? All right, I'll double it, you're hired. Yeah, exactly. And he did the same thing with the uh, the professor of uh, weather. I forget yeah, the guy who find the clouds. Yeah, yeah, and and that was another point that uh, you just reminded me of is that he shot the film and then he was watching the dailies, right? That's the you know whatever they've recorded that day. And he's right. like, the, the planes look like they're not even moving. You know, they look real slow. It's not exciting. There's nothing really cool. And he realized it's because there's no background. You know, he's just got stark blue sky behind him. And so without that uh, relative information, you know, when you're viewing it, you don't see how fast things are you don't see how close things are it's not exciting so he hires this guy to say you know all right tell me where there's gonna be clouds we're gonna move our entire outfit over there as soon as possible to record to you know to do the filming and it takes him something like what six months something along those lines he's he just got planes and actors and cameras and crew just all sitting there paying him i don't know some odd thousands of dollars a day to do nothing other than wait for the right environment to uh to come into play, and it, it finally does, and he reshoots the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hughes really had a singular artistic vision, and he wanted to produce the the highest quality product for his consumers. And uh, yeah, he spared no expense, and he was ultimately proven correct when um, the movie was a big success. Yeah, and I think a leftist would look at this and go, you know, well, he, he's just out for profit, so he should have just put out some crappy product and made consumers exploit the uh, workers and exploit the consumers, you know, fool them into watching this movie. But he went out of his way to make sure there was going to be a good movie. He went out of his way to make sure he was paying the people to be available, right? Like they weren't actually doing anything other than just waiting for the right moment. And he was paying for that the whole time. So Isn't if that anyone... Year's wet dream? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was taking the reins, using his own money to follow that artistic vision that he had. And he wasn't going to let that go. And that's a theme throughout yeah, the movie. Smart where he will throw his resources behind a project. I mean, he, he's a guy that had a, a drive to create the best quality product and the best experience for his customers. When he's developing the planes later on, he wants a plane that will be able to fly higher, so it's a smoother flight for everybody. He wants a plane that will be able to fly farther. There's a whole bunch of scenes where he is trying to get the rivets down on the plane, on the fuselage, so that it's a smoother and be able to, plane able to go faster and farther and he was just a, he was a man that was driven to innovate. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he's just a, he was an innovator and a, uh, an entrepreneur and an engineer. And uh, he was just, he rightfully, in my mind, he, he rightfully earned the money. Uh, he seemed to work a lot, put in a lot of hours for people that go and complain about his wealth. It's usually people that don't work as hard. Anyway. No, I mean, there is a certain element in there. We find out later in the film that he has OCD. So the obsessive compulsion is obviously coming through in all this. But still, I mean, he's using it to ultimately, even if he doesn't realize it, he's ultimately benefiting the customers. You know, the, the smoother ride, the, the less clunky plane that flies above the weather, as he puts it. It's all, it's all 
driven to kind of serve the customer better. And, and he really he really does a good job of that. I mean, Juan Tripp doesn't have to do that because he's got the, the senator in his pocket. So why why bother with, with, you know, accommodating the customer and what their needs are? Yeah, yeah, they can focus on uh, just running that international operation. They don't have to worry about competition so they can do a better job, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the Owen Brewster line. And, you know, in, in a way, I think to a, an economic illiterate or, a, or a, just a common everyday person who's a bit naive to it, uh, that would sound somewhat reasonable, you know? Yeah, you right. think you can focus think more on. on not really. Sorry, what, go ahead, John. No, I was going to say, you would think that, you know, the, the Juan Tripp, uh, Senator Brewster approach would be a lot more efficient, but. You know, ultimately, who benefited the customer more it was Hughes on his own, on his own, driving his own ship and achieving his own goals. Yeah, it really, if you go ahead and give yourself a de facto monopoly by buying off Congress to use violence to keep out any kind of competitors, you have no drive and no need to innovate to beat out the competition. So ultimately, you're giving your customers a worse experience in the long term. I mean, yeah, they may buy new planes from whatever, Boeing or whoever. But in the long term, you're yeah you're you're not innovating to the level that you would if you actually had competition. Well, at that point, you're really becoming an extension of the government. And as we know from every government bureaucracy, what what incentive is there to serve the customer if you can use just use the uh, the, the force of government to take money from your quote unquote customers? Yeah. What incentive do you have to provide better customer service? Who cares? You're the only game in town. So of course exactly. they're going to have to come. Yeah, you know, I gotta, I gotta interject the uh, net neutrality argument that's been going on lately. Uh, we did an article on it and it went semi-viral. It got thousands of views. It's, it's by far the most viewed article on our site and it's got a bunch of comments and, and it's caused a whole bunch of uh, strife. <laughs> and our argument is basically net neutrality is, is newspeak or Wellian newspeak for cronyism. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know how you can view it any other way unless you're just not paying it. Net neutrality, the, the reason they name it that is because it sounds great. Like, who wasn't, who, do, who doesn't want net neutrality? I mean, who wants the internet to be favored to one, toward one party or the other? It's again, this, this government trick they do of making everything sound great, like the Patriot Act or the Affordable Care Act. It's just anything they can do to make it sound like they're really trying to help you, but in fact, they're just looking out for the people who are lining their pockets. Yeah, isn't the old rule of thumb that, you know, whatever the name of the bill is, it's intended to do the exact opposite. Right. Yeah, and neutrality, I mean, if you think about the term, it means taking no position. It's like the Swiss, right? And if that's truly what it meant, like there is no position being taken, like no hand, if to use the old uh, George Costanza Seinfeld reference, <laughs> then I would be all for it, you know, like the government takes no position on this on this matter. All right, great, net neutrality, yay. But it doesn't mean yeah. that. It means take a position, take a very strong position, regulate, control, have all the hand. Like it's anything right. but neutral. It's basically net subjectivity. Yeah, where the term comes from is that it means that Internet service providers, ISPs, can't discriminate data based on its source. But discrimination is a good thing. It's a fantastic thing. Everybody discriminates all the time. And they should be able to discriminate data dependent on where it comes and how much of it is and all that sort of thing. It helps you allocate resources better. It gives you an idea of actual demand. Um, there's no When there's no cost involved, how do you know where to allocate what? You need prices, you need demand, you need costs, and I'm saying it poorly, but uh, there's an article up on actualenergy.com that explains it quite well, um, the one that I think, Daniel, you posted right after your article. Yeah, mine's more of a rant, and, and the one by Carl, uh, 
I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it's Carl Kellogg or Kellogg. Um, he went more into the weeds on it because he's a bit more technical than I am. I, I was just ranting and, and putting a bunch of sources down there. And, and that one got a lot of, a lot of traffic. And then he followed up with a little bit deeper of a technical explanation and into the bureaucratic morass through which these types of uh, interventions take place and how it does not benefit the consumer. But yet everybody, everybody believes it. And, and then they'll also take that as a, as an evidence that it's the right position to take. Like, hey, everybody, it's like this argumentum ad populum fallacy where, hey, everybody understands that net neutrality is great. How could you possibly be against it? People well, that, really that's where my, uh, my rant came from because I was just overwhelmed with the deluge of pro net neutrality commentary on Facebook and on Twitter. And I was like, oh my, you know, I just can't, I can't bear to see this. It was almost as many um, arguments for net neutrality as there were tears, liberal tears, when Trump won the election. Yeah, you can't even. Well, if Nancy Pelosi isn't controlling the Internet, I mean, what hope is there for humanity, you know? <laughs> yeah, she's got to uh, pass the bill before she can see what's on the Internet or something, right? Exactly. All right, so let's let's get back to our movies. Or do, we, do you have any more notes before we get into the H1 racer and all that stuff? Yeah, no, let's go, yeah, go to the next paragraph. All right, so in 1935, Hughes test flies the H1 racer, pushing it to a new speed record. Three years later, he breaks the world record flying around the world in just four days. He subsequently purchases majority interest in Transcontinental and Western Air, TWA. Juan Tripp, company rival and chairman of Pan Am, gets his crony, Senator Owen Brewster, to introduce the Community Airline Bill, which would give Pan Am exclusivity on international air travel. Hepburn grows tired of Hughes' eccentricity and leaves him for fellow actor Spencer Tracy. Hughes quickly finds a new love interest for the 15-year-old Faith Domergue. How do you say that? Domergue? Domergue. And later actress Ava Gardner. However, he still has feelings for Hepburn and blackmails a reporter to keep reports about her and the married Tracy out of the press. So this jumped pretty far ahead. Yeah. Um, Let's dial it back to when he and Hepburn first start hanging out. I've got a slide of the um, the air yacht that he lands at the beach in, and let's take it from there. A big note on this one, on this particular scene, uh, I did, you know, right afterward when they were golfing, I uh, I noted that she said, well, how did you vote in 32? He says he didn't, he, and she says, you must, it's your sacred duty. And uh, I think that's pretty typical of, you know, not not just, you know, she was a socialist, but uh, basically a status in general who who thinks that uh, voting is really crucial to the American democracy, and God forbid he didn't do that. This duty to take part in this democratic process as if it's this noble endeavor, and it's, uh, yeah, real gross in my, in my view. <laughs> yeah, I was going to just uh, throw in another Mencken quote, and that is that democracy is a pathetic belief in the collective wisdom of individual ignorance. Just cuts to the heart of the matter. I can totally see why Rothbard was such a fan of Mencken. Indeed. So that's wisdom right there. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, there's, like you said, they skip over a bit of information or a bit of information in the, in the movie anyway, um, about how he broke the speed record. And what, what jumped out at me about that is that, you know, when it comes to, especially these days, like space travel and things like that, Everybody just automatically thinks that NASA or the government should, should handle that, even though uh, Elon Musk seems to be doing a better job. Can't think of the other guy's name, the Virgin, the Virgin Airlines guy. Right. Um, but he did that basically because he wanted to create a plane that went faster than any plane had gone before. It wasn't any government mandate. It wasn't 
the aviation bureaucracy that, that mandated that someone do this. He did it on his own because he had a love for aviation. And ultimately, he wanted to build a plane that would ultimately get people from A to B quicker than ever before. And more comfortably. I think, Robert, you alluded to that earlier when he said that he wanted to fly above the weather. Exactly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And a more fuel-efficient vehicle if you've got a more streamlined. Hence right. The rivet, yep. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about Hepburn and his whirlwind romance with her, and he eventually ends up meeting the family out at the estate of, of her parents. Yeah, that was would have been real uncomfortable for me, and as it, as it was uncomfortable for him, I assume. But yeah, you're like in a lion's den. He, she seems to be more of a worldly person, seems to have an appreciation for all sorts of different things. She's kind of a tomboy, get your nails dirty, that sort of thing. But then he goes to this kind of East Coast ivory tower liberal mansion where all these socialists are hanging out. Yeah, slash commune, almost. It seemed really bizarre. Right. Very nice commune. Oh, yeah. This is quite nice. But, yeah, um, the the dinner table conversation um, really stood out to me where the, I don't know who it was, was it her mother who kind of was like the, yeah, kind of like ruled the roost and kind of led the conversation at the table. And they were kind of like, you know, asking him what he read and then turned their noses down when he was like, well, I, I read trade magazines because, you know, it has to do with what I do. And he's not like taking his time to read like higher level philosophy or all this other crap. He's like, yeah, he's like doing this blue collar working man stuff. And they, they feel like they're above that. And then they have this whole disdain for money as if it's not important. And he's like, well, that's because you have it. <laughs> Yes, that's the great line that every libertarian should love in this movie, if nothing else. Right, yeah. It's like, we don't care about money here, Mr. Hughes. It's because you have it. Some of us choose to work for a living. And, it, and again, yeah. isn't that indicative of the, the socialists today, like Bernie Sanders and, and Al Gore, or God forbid Hillary Clinton, who claims to be a, you know, a champion of the people? I mean, they're all, they're all the apparatchik from the Soviet Union. You know, they get to, they get to live the good life because they're, working out how society should be run and how the peasants should should live. Yeah, real social engineers. Daniel, how did you feel about that scene, buddy? Well, it really stood out to me that they would ask him questions and then totally not listen to his responses because they felt it was totally beneath them. And he has a, I think it's part of his obsessive nature to where he had a, a very strong understanding of how everything worked, you know, from an engineering standpoint, and he had a grand vision. And, you know, like when he was even planning the, the plane with his plane builder, he would give him ideas and say, all right, now I want you to do this. I want you to streamline this. I want you to put this horsepower engine in it. I want you to sweep the wings this way. Like he was a, a brilliant guy who had just tons of, of information accessible to him. And I'm sort of straying from the dinner conversation, but they didn't give a shit about what he, the amazing things he was able to, to conceive of in his mind. They were more worried about ridiculous philosophy books. Um, I think they mentioned, was it Faust or Darwin or someone like that? And then they also, you know, were painting and, and talking about modern art and all these things. And I mean, sure, they have their place, but they had no appreciation for what this guy was doing, which was serving customers, making things more efficient, improving the, the standard of living for everyone. And that seems to be the running theme with socialists. I recently read an article today, this morning, that was completely mischaracterizing capitalism, but explaining how capitalism is just the worst thing ever and how socialism is fantastic. And, you know, they always do this from the comforts of their, you know, nicely air-conditioned homes, and they type on their computers and all the ways in which capitalism has made their lives imaginably better. 
And so they just take it for granted that, yeah, of course there's going to be advancements in aviation and technology and that sort of thing. Of course, that's what the, the plebes do, but we're, we're under this high level stuff. We're, we don't, we don't bother ourselves with such pity matters. We're up with this high minded crap that doesn't actually do anything for anybody. Well, that's one of the things that really irks me about Hollywood and celebrities and entertainers in general is that, you know, especially actors, I mean, at least, you know, musicians can create songs. But what do actors do? They basically read other people's lines. They pretend to be other people. Uh, you know, if you see an interview with Robert De Niro, he's one of the most boring people in the world. And he only seems to shine when he's pretending to be somebody else. So we're supposed to look up to these people and listen to their opinions on economics or uh, you know, social values or how society should be run or, or whatever. And we're basically dealing with people who play pretend for a living or who sing or dance or, you know, and again, like, uh, like, like Dan said that these things have their place, but you know, it, it's, it's only of a value as much as the hardworking people or the, or the productive people of society, uh, create the kind of economy that allows for the kind of leisure that makes acting or singing or dancing valuable. And I think like you, like you were saying that this, this family totally doesn't appreciate the value that somebody like Hughes is bringing to them because they've got this daughter who's making however much money on the silver screen pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, I was was just going to say that's one of the points that we bring up pretty often in our shows. And that is that these people who have the luxury to go out and protest and complain because all of their other needs are met by capitalism. Right. So anyway, that was my point. Uh, Robert, go ahead. No, yeah, they have the luxury to complain and whine about capitalism because of capitalism. It's it's powerfully ironic. I mean, really, what? Let's let's roll the clock back 150 years. Do you think these people would have the time to, you know, go out in the streets and protest capitalism if they had to work 16 hours working on the farm? I mean, it's it's just it's 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 all about perspective in the sense that they were born into a world that other people built. And they think that all these things like their iPhone that they can take selfies at during a Donald Trump protest, that these, these things somehow magically just happen and there's no economic effort whatsoever in, in creating these things. It's, it's really laughable. And then they, they listen to people like Katy Perry or, or whomever in, uh, in, in Hollywood and they just, and I think it's indicative of the public education system, an education system that's run by the government that has no incentive in really conveying the value that entrepreneurship and, you know, real economic progress has, has brought for society. It's like they just want to make people think that it's all the government and without them, they'd be, you know, little hairless monkeys living in caves waiting to, for their next meal to somehow magically occur. Yeah, like in 2001, they're all just uh, jumping around the obelisk or whatever, yeah. <laughs> like worshiping it. Uh, yeah, and, and this line of thinking, it reminds me of a point we made in um, – Dumb and Dumber, and I think you, you mentioned that you listened to that one recently. Yeah. The, uh, the concept that the government accomplished this great and noble thing gives people the impression that they can, of course, handle anything else, such as managing the economy or healthcare or what have you. And, you know, some of those accomplishments would be like landing on the moon or defeating the uh, Axis powers in World War II and, and things of that nature. And so people will look to those things and go, well, if they can do that, of course they can manage the roads and the libraries and the fire department and all this other stuff that on the surface it might sound reasonable until you understand, you know, you read Hazlitt, Economics for, for uh, in One Lesson or 
Uh, Gene Callahan has a great book, uh, Economics for Real People. You, you start to understand that there are costs to these things and that any time a government intervenes or taxes, you're trying to mold behavior. You're trying to change what people would otherwise have chosen to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to have that law or that tax or that regulation. And all of these things mean that people are accomplishing things lower on their value scales and they have fewer resources available to them. And all of this stunts productivity and it stunts growth and it stunts progress. And it's really sad to see. Yeah. And even with all that stunting going on, we still get amazing technological innovations all the time. And we still take them for granted almost instantly. <laughs> like uh, there's a comedian named Louis C.K. And he does a pretty funny bit about cell phones and how just how amazing the technology is that how quickly you become accustomed to not having to wait for, I don't know, information that you would have had to dig around in the library for just 30 years ago, and now you have it at your fingertips in, in almost instantly. But if you have to wait like two seconds, you get annoyed. <laughs> We've been conditioned by how amazing the technological advances are to just be take it for granted all the time now. And uh, I feel like socialists, are more guilty of that than capitalists. I think we have a little bit more of an appreciation for all the work and the effort and the ingenuity that goes into these things. Now, is that the same rant where he, he goes off on how people are complaining about how long it takes to traverse the entire country? Like you're flying in a freaking metal tube going half the speed of sound. <laughs> you know, you're yeah, getting somewhere in like five hours, and it used to be covered wagon times, you know, take like two or three months, and you'd probably die of dysentery on the Oregon Trail, you know? Yep. Yeah, that's the one. It's good stuff. <laughs> So that's I mean, a nice not segue. Great on everything, but it's a good, it's a good rant. That's a nice segue into uh, the TWA portion, where he wants to get this new plane, the Connie, the Constellation. Uh, so let's let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, yeah, sure. What do you got for that? I, I have him just like paying. He cuts himself. He cuts a check out of his own money to pay for it. His first order from I think who was it? Was it Boeing that was making that? Or was it, it, yeah, was Lockheed. Lockheed. Oh, and right, right. He went to them and. and essentially, I think, uh, came up with an idea and they sort of presented it to him. And he was like, oh, I want exclusive rights to the first 40 off the assembly line. And he cuts a check right then and there. And it's to make a, a, a essentially a luxury liner because up until this point, he was almost like cattle car flying in, in an airplane and it was still very expensive. And so he wanted to improve the service. He wanted to make it more comfortable. He wanted to make it more uh, affordable like all of these things, improving the quality of life for people. And so he uh, he was very visionary in wanting to get this particular plane that was so much better than, than the existing planes that uh, were already in service. Yeah, and I think this is the, the part of the movie, if I'm not mistaken, where he really starts to understand the government's role in um, making sure that certain people can traverse the country or traverse the world and other other companies who can't in the sense that uh, he does have a phone call where he uh, phones the secretary of commerce, I think, or somebody connected to the secretary of commerce because he's looking for airports in Newfoundland and Ireland. So he can, you know, go from New York to Paris by going through those particular things. He's looking for tax breaks. Uh, basically he's looking for uh, a cronyist way to take it, get an advantage over Pan Am. And of course he later runs into opposition through Senator Brewster, but that, that's really where he seems to understand that he just can't do this on his own. He's going to, he's going to have to, you know, grease some wheels in, in the, in the government sector to kind of get where he's, where he wants to go. Yeah. I, that reminds me of, um, and this is probably the scene you're talking about where he's talking to Dietrich. He's like, I want you to grease the skids, buy off whoever. I want to, you to buy these politicians. 
And Brewster's like, you want me to do something illegal? He's like, well, of course not. I want you to do it the legal way. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah and, that's, and that's a point later on in the movie where they talk about how they get the contract, the big military contracts. And it's common practice in the, in the business. It's not legal or illegal or whatever, but it's you wine and dine these senators. You get them girlfriends. You take them out to the nice shows. You basically entertain them. And then you get rewarded with these big fat government contracts. But it's not technically illegal, right? Right, you're yeah. just showing the guys the time, and if they happen to, to pass legislation that uh, favors you, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? So let's start talking about some of those uh, juicy government contracts that he did get, because uh, this was World War II times, and so he was awarded a couple of projects. One was a troop transport that ended up becoming the um, the Hercules uh, Spruce Goose, and then the other was the uh, spy plane that he developed, a two-fuselage uh counter-rotating uh, rotors in the front. So let's uh, dive into that. Yeah, so the uh, the Hercules was in response to the German U-boats in the Atlantic, who which sunk like, I don't know how many, just hundreds and thousands of U.S. ships and British ships, basically shutting down Atlantic shipping, where we were selling, I don't know, lots and lots and lots of goods to support our allies over there. And uh, the U-boats were just causing hell, killing all kinds of people, destroying all kinds of products. So he came up with the idea to just be able to fly over all the stuff. And he needed a really big plane to be able to load all that material and tanks and other sorts of things in there. And yeah, he he kind of got mocked for it because it was so big. And because of the uh, shortage in aluminum due to the war, he had to make it out of wood. It wasn't his first choice. He didn't want to make it out of wood, but he did what he could with what he had, and he was trying to solve the problem. He was trying to fill uh, a need that a customer had. So uh, he was an innovator, and he got mocked for it. It's unfortunate. See, this is an instance where I think people would say, well, you see, that's government drives innovation, because without government backing, this, the, you know, Howard Hughes would never have been able to get the, the Hercules off the ground or off the water, so to speak. There is a there is a place for government in the sense that you know they need a, a new plane for the war and he's got this innovative kind of solution to it. But again, I think it's it's very cronyist in that sense, and I think it would be an argument for someone who favors the state to, to, to point to this and say, see, without government, things like this just just can't get off the ground. Right. It's like what Dan was saying earlier that government does do some things. It does. It does. You can't point to a few big things that government does do. It does have some innovation. I mean, you throw enough money at a thing, you will innovate somewhere, but right. you're not going to – it's all the unseen stuff, right? It's all the innovation that you don't get, all the money and all the waste that go to people like what Dan was saying with their second choice, not their first choice with all that. So, When also you see how much money he wasted, and I think like – but that's a, that's a kind of a free market argument to say, well, of course, if you – forcefully direct money toward a certain project or certain companies, of course they're going to take their time in building it and they're going to, they're going to waste all this money to do it. Of course, that's, that's the incentive. Like that's, as long as you've got the, the, the taxpayer money flowing to you, then why not take your time or, or do whatever you need to do to make sure that it, it carries on as long as possible. So really, we're, yeah, we're dealing with two different arguments. We're dealing with the status argument and the free market argument. That shows the, uh, the 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 results of of government intervention in any in any industry. That's of uh, inefficiency and waste when you there's no market pressure to create a product. If you don't have to actually respond to the market, like recently, um, Tesla and Elon Musk, there were some bunch of tax credits I think in like Hong Kong and other places 
and those were recently removed, and then his sales went to zero. There hasn't been a sale of a Tesla in Hong Kong, I want to say, in the past few months. I don't know if that really solves my, my point, but uh, good. Daniel, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that whenever you have a government allocating resources towards something, it, it is a malinvestment because it is removing the first several options that those people would have otherwise made who had that money and then it was taken from them. And sure, certain things can be developed over time through these government things, but it is a misallocation. It's a forced, uh, you're forcing money into a project that isn't necessary. It's not there to serve consumers because ultimately that's what improves quality of life. It's not going out creating something that's going to destroy human, you know, people, homes, uh, other areas of the world. That's not productive. That's, that's all a net negative. That's all destruction and waste. And so, you know, like some of the benefits we get out of the government are like tang and things like that. Well, you know, who cares, right? Oranges are better. Uh, in fact, uh, no. he thought orange juice was uh, curing his uh, illness or his um, after his accident, he was recovering from the crash of the uh, XF-11 and he was drinking orange juice, fresh squeezed right in front of him because he was his uh, madness was sort of taking over. And I, I wanted to just point out that the whole madness thing. I, I, I think there's a, a, a correlation between being on that edge of madness, the edge of craziness, and being super creative and productive. You see it with like Charles Mingus and Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain and, and a lot of these super famous people. They were on that edge, right? That creative edge of, of being slightly crazy, but also very forward thinking and productive. And that's probably, like you said, the fine line, the balance you kind of have to, have to make between, you know, the, the foot kind of uh, abnormal focus that these kind of human beings carry with them in the sense that, you know, they, they're, they're able to focus and able to create this great art or this, these great innovations. But it also comes at a cost because this hyperactive brain that they've got going on in there is constantly tilting one way or the other. And, you know, there's who knows what can finally set them off. If it's, you know, something traumatic, it, it can set them off in the, it can tilt it in the wrong direction. And I think that's what happened with Hughes here with his frustration with the government and everything to that effect. Uh, and ultimately, I want to go just step back for a moment here and, and talk about what are we ultimately saying here? You know, uh, we, we were dealing with the cronyism and the lack of innovation that might have come otherwise. But that's because what are we dealing with? We're talking about a government program that is, in fact, war. Howard Hughes is, is contracted to build these planes for the war effort. And as we all know, war is the health of the state. And if government wasn't getting us into these horrible conflicts, Hughes might have just gone along his way and built better planes than the Constellation. But instead, you know, people, the people in the government went to him and said, hey, we need this gigantic plane or we need this spy plane or whatever. And again, it's his trouble ultimately come from the state because of their incessant insatiable appetite for war. Yeah, it comes back to bite him in the end when he Brewster puts him on basically puts him on open trial for his wartime efforts. When his 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 company, I mean, they, they started talking about what like government waste during the war and all the different companies that had contracts and failed to provide those contracts in time. I mean, how right. is it how is it Hughes's fault that the war ends at a certain time? <laughs> that doesn't make right. <laughs> you didn't deliver on those planes before the war was over. Well, how control when the war is over? Well, according to the bureaucrats, he should have finished by such and such a date. Well, how would they know? They're not they're not aeronautic experts, right? Yeah. So let's talk about the uh, the hearings a little bit because they were they were investigating him for taking advantage of these government contracts, right? And they were going through his offices uh, dozens of times, and they knew that he had some kind of um, 
disorder, that this was very disturbing to him, and yet they continued to do it. And in fact, Owen Brewster had him come out for a sit-down with him and purposefully left fingerprints on his glass, his drinking glass, and, and did a couple of other things that he was in, he was intentionally trying to, to throw Howard Hughes off to make him uncomfortable. Yeah, that meeting was a standout scene for me. You've got Brewster saying some ridiculous comments to, if anybody has any kind of understanding about economics, you would just like laugh at him. So is he really that dumb or is he saying these things? Like here's an example. He says, America cannot afford to have more than one international carrier. One airline can do it better. All I'm thinking about are the needs of the American passenger. I mean, to say that one company can do a thing if it's left alone to have a monopoly over an area or to have monopoly in any given market, it, it, it doesn't jive with what we know about human motivation and incentives and just economics at all. And I think Hughes would have known that. So, I mean, who's he really talking to here? What's, what's he really saying? Is he yeah, that's a line that stood out to me too. And yeah, it's it's very anti-capitalist for at a time when everybody was supposed to be anti-communist and pro-capitalism and pro pro-America. You know that the the, the things that made America great. It's amazing that he was actually saying that line that America can't afford to have two international airlines. And anybody who's looking at that can see the fallacies in that. I would hope, unless they're Again, Bernie Sanders, and they're talking about, well, why are there 22 different deodorants when people are going hungry? Yeah, I mean, can America not afford to have more than one automobile manufacturer or one shoe manufacturer or one cheese manufacturer? I mean, that's just a ridiculous statement to make. You know, there's a a beautiful irony to this. There's Rothbard lectures, and I've got them in the uh, Rothbard repository. But Pan Am, they were the international carrier, the cartel-arranged monopoly provider, and they ended up going out of business as a result of not being able to have domestic feeder routes to get people from other areas of the country to their international hubs. So that's what essentially drove them out of business, is that they were partitioned off to be this international airline, leaving the domestic stuff to other cartel-arranged players. And so it ended up doing them in in the end. So it was the death of their own doing then? Is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, self-inflicted uh, <laughs> a wound, if you will. Hmm, interesting. Suicide by legislation. So let's get into the hearing a little bit because there are some juicy bits here, and I know you guys have notes on that. Yep, I do. Yeah. So Brewster holds some Senate hearings, and he drags in Hughes, and Hughes is like a at this point, and the movie plays around with the timeline a little bit. I mean, he, Hughes in this time, I don't think is a super hardcore agoraphobe, but this is towards the end of the movie where. They've got to have him be a weirdo agoraphobe when in reality it was more like into the 60s and the 70s when he was really declining. But you got to mess around with that a little bit. Um, and uh, Brewster calls him out into the public. And so, of course, he's got to like try and pull himself together because he's like a big time agoraphobe and he doesn't want to be around all these people and touching him and slapping him on the back and whatnot. And he's basically calling him out to because he is the opposition to Pan Am. And Brewster is trying to vilify him as this war profiteer to get him to back off this community airline bill and go along with that. And um, it's interesting that there's some back and forth between Brewster and DiCaprio where Brewster's like, Juan Tripp is a patriot. He's not interested in making money. <laughs> and uh, DiCaprio comes back with, well, I'm sure his stockholders will be interested to hear that. <laughs> It's uh, a lot of good stuff. I, uh, John, you got some uh, some notes on the, the hearings, or Daniel? Yeah, actually, that that was exactly one of the lines that I uh, when he said that uh, Juan Tripp isn't interested in making money because history repeats itself, and how often do we hear that nowadays? That you know, 
capitalists try to portray themselves as people who are really looking out for the people and they're not really interested in making money. Now, I know that entrepreneurship is ultimately about serving the customer. So ultimately, the customer does benefit. But to, you know, kind of make disinterest in, in money or, or financial gain a virtue, a public virtue now is obviously rearing its ugly head again. And it, and it obviously did here. Um, and I also like the fact that uh, Howard Hughes pointed out that the, the CAB bill was in fact written by Pan Am executives and not exactly by uh, by lawmakers themselves. Yeah, he asked right. if if he uh, had even read the thing, right? Like, did you write any of this? Did you have you even right. read it? <laughs> Which harkens to Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to pass it to find out what's in it. Right, and this happens constantly all the time. This is what companies do when it's cheaper to buy a Congress than it is to innovate and actually invest in your own products to outcompete. It's right. uh, it's a better return on investment. So, uh, again, this is the effect of government being in the equation and using government as force in the market. It's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a real shit show. I mean, I know from a moral standpoint, you kind of got to say, well, this is where the goalposts are. This is a part of the the horizon, or this is a part of the game. So you can't really blame any one actor for taking part. I mean, I don't. I mean, Hughes kind of he has to get into the game of buying senators and whatnot and whining and dining generals kind of as a defensive way. I mean, just as the way the game is played. So I don't really look at him as like an immoral actor in that sense. And I don't know if I do really for one trip either. Um, he has a duty to serve his, his shareholders and he's doing it the best way he knows how, and he's getting the best return on his investment. I mean, like Daniel said, I, it ultimately it bankrupted the company and it died off. But at the time he thought it was, he was doing the best thing. I don't necessarily see him as a villain. I think the villain is this belief in authority and the idea that um, government is a problem solver and is an effective way to accomplish anything. Um, the existence of government, I think, is, is the real villain here, as it always is. Um, but and again, if you also, have a tool like a government or like somebody like Brewster on your side, why wouldn't you use him if it's to your advantage? Because if you don't use him, then who, who's to say Howard Hughes wouldn't have come along and buddied up to, to Brewster eventually? Uh, you know, it's just as long as the tool of government is out there, it's always going to be used by those who can figure out a way to use it to their advantage. Yeah, it's right. that ring yeah. of power, and they think they can wield it. And just think of all the waste that goes into this plunder-seeking behavior, this whining and dining of senators, senators and buying off congressmen. You know, it's it. these people aren't then focused on doing something productive, right? They're fighting over scraps. They're fighting over privileges, like actual privilege, not not this made-up boogeyman of white privilege, but like legitimate government-granted protections. And that is all wasteful. That's all inefficient, and it's all terrible. And that's like Robert was saying, it's the rules of the game, unfortunately. Yeah. And I know that in the movie, we're also we're specifically talking about war profiteers and that you are somehow evilly accepting dollars where you're supposed to be some sort of a pure patriot person. But it also kind of vilifies a little bit profiteering in general. And that is, like you said, John, rearing its ugly head these days again. Um, when profits are just a reward for the capitalist correctly anticipating the market, it is a return on your investment. And it, it shows that you are providing value to people who are willing right. to give you money voluntarily. <laughs> so we should exactly. be celebrating Celebrating profits, it's a fantastic thing. We, we should love rich people for all the value they provide, but instead they get vilified. It's, it's totally ass backwards. Well, so long as their, their riches are 
created from market activities, you know, satisfying people's desires. None of this cronyism like right. these apparatchiks that uh, John was talking about, like our Gores and Clintons and Sanders and all of those. Right. I think, unfortunately, like even in even in everyday society, it's gotten to a point where, you know, like like 30 years ago, you know, if I had been walking down with the street with my dad and we saw some guy drive down the Mercedes, he probably would have said to me, you know, that's Mr. Johnson. You know, he owns the shop down there. He's up at, at 4:30 every morning and he goes to goes home at 10 o'clock at night. And if you work hard like that, you can have a Mercedes sometimes. And now. If the same scenario happened, the father would probably say, you know, that's Mr. Johnson. Fuck that guy, you know, the greedy bastard, you know, with his Mercedes. He thinks he's better than me because I have a Honda or whatever. It's it's just amazing that uh, how much poisoned our our psyche has been in everyday society to, to, to that we can't even look at somebody who's who's got some kind of success, even if it's even if it's legitimate, and uh, without harboring some kind of ill ill feelings toward him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, success yeah. has been de- demonized. Uh, not paying your taxes has been successfully demonized. Exactly. <laughs> that, that really that really drives me crazy. The fact that uh, we're we're judging people now by uh, whether or not they pay their taxes or how much they pay their taxes. It's now become a, a competition of who gets their more of their money stolen. It's yeah. all about virtue signaling these days. Yep. Yeah, unfortunate. So, you know, I think we're almost running out of movie here. Let's talk about some of the key moments within that testimony, because they do bring him in there as a war profiteer. And Robert Higgs has really good stuff on this about cost plus contracts and all of the false prosperity that was recorded during World War II. And I'll post a uh, a link to that to one of those lectures in our show notes page, which will be at actuallyanarchy.com slash 33. But the uh, I think the turning point in the hearings is when Brewster starts chasing Hughes about not delivering the spruce goose on time and how much money has been squandered on it, how much money has he taken from the government working on this project and it's not delivered, so it's all been wasted. Hughes comes back with a beautiful retort. And do you either either of you guys want to pick up on that retort? Um, I just remember him saying. Yeah, how much money he spent and then – or how much money he took and then how much more money he spent of his own money and how much he cared about aviation and how passionate he is about it. Is that is that where you're going with this, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Brewster's like, where's the $30 million? He's like, well, I spent it. And another $80 million on top of it out of my own pocket. <laughs> and also I think yeah. it goes into like the uh, the other companies who contracted with the government who didn't deliver what they, what they had promised. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. he said that, uh, you know, Hughes Aircraft is sure we got a couple hundred million dollars of contracts or, or whatever the number was, but we're the only ones up here on the stand today testifying, defending right. ourselves when these other, these next, you know, 20 larger companies took almost a billion dollars or, or whatever the numbers were. I mean, don't quote me. I haven't watched this movie in a little while, but it was like a, a huge disparity and it was very clearly a witch hunt and he was calling that out right in front of everyone, and, and I think it played really, really well. Yeah, it shows, uh, shows the results of whether whether or not you play ball with uh, the people in charge. You can either uh, reap the rewards or suffer the consequences. Yeah, so do you guys want to talk about, um, I mean, we're at the end of the movie here, but we did kind of gloss over, we didn't even mention the, the whole spying thing. I mean, that's one thing that was a little bit interesting to me, not, not, not as much as the big issues. I mean, he was a strange guy, but he also had this habit of, wiretapping his girlfriend yeah. and i know daniel and i got into this a little bit on a bonus episode or a little fail false one of our false start patreon little bits yeah i think our first but false I, start yeah i think daniel you were taking the position that you can't really you don't think you didn't think it was immoral is that right the the whole 
spying thing. Well, now I'm going to have to go back and listen to it and, and figure out what I said, but I think I said that it was dishonest of him to be doing this and not disclose it to her mm-hmm. uh, because there's sort but of this didn't. implicit understanding that, you know, you're not spying on people and it's a live omission when you don't tell them. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I, I could be wrong. i got to go back and listen to it. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I've changed position. I'm flip-flopping thing. here. It's a, it's a creepy thing, and ultimately my concern would be what is he going to do with the, the recordings? Is it just for, like, to make sure she's not cheating on him or is he going to use it for some ill-gotten gains but it just seemed like he was not that i think it's definitely unethical and and, and creepy like i said but uh i don't think he was using it for any advantage to him uh financially or or socially or anything like that i think he was just paranoid that she was either cheating on him or i don't know going behind his back in some way shape or form but yeah i definitely don't condone people wiretapping other people without their consent nor the government doing it Without our consent. And that, that's the ultimate thing. Like, if, if, if the government wiretapping you, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, it's basically tough shit, uh, ultimately. But, uh, you know, she could leave him. Ava Gardner could leave Howard Hughes eventually if she, if she when she found out. So uh, that, I think that's, again, that's the difference between whether uh, a private entity wrongs you or, or a public entity wrongs you. It's, it's much harder to get... Uh, reap, reap some kind of uh, restitution with the with the public institution rather than the uh, private one. Right. Yeah. Pub, private institutions are constantly working their asses off to service you, and if they don't service you in the way you find appropriate or their behavior appropriate, you can stop supporting them. But with government, you don't have that choice. You have to support them regardless, just because you have right. to happen to live in a certain area. Yeah, we're so, constantly told that if we don't like it, we can leave. But of course. Right. You can't, and like when the southern states attempted to, they war was they brought got, upon them. So you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. you got invaded, right? But uh, yeah, privatization seems to get demonized from time to time, or almost all the time. But it is really the ultimate power is in the consumer and their ability to choose one product over another or not support one product or another. I mean, you could love what say McDonald's hamburgers, but if some business practice happens where you don't agree with. You can just stop eating their hamburgers, and uh, it's it's the ultimate power is in the power of the consumer, and uh, yeah, you just don't get that with um, these forces of government. Yeah, try so. try going to the NSA and saying like, you know, I really don't appreciate the fact that uh, you're uh, you're listening in on my phone calls, and well, okay, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? You know, the, it, it, reminds me, it reminds me of this uh, um, Edward Snowden. He's on Twitter, and he only follows one account. And that is the account of the NSA. It's kind of funny. (laughs) It is funny. All right. So any other points that we want to rewind the tape on and and talk Uh, about? I just like uh, just at the end there. I mean, I don't know if if this is I didn't read the contract yet with the government, but at the end of the movie, of course, the Hercules ultimately flies. So I don't know if that, you know, he's fulfilled his contract in the sense that, you know, he, he ultimately did deliver a plane that could fly or if it's more reflective of the part of the point that, you know, he is so driven in the sense that he really wants to make good on his contract that, you know, he, he could have just said, you know, after the hearing, well, screw you guys. I'm just going to let that thing rot in the hangar. But he ultimately did take that thing airborne. And uh, I think it's, it's either uh, indicative of his, his drive to see thing to see something to its end 
or it's uh, his ultimate obligation is fulfilled to the government, and uh, he did deliver a big plane that flew. Yeah, I think he said at the end of the hearing that if that plane doesn't fly, he'll leave the country. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, he got it to fly. So, yeah, I think it was a, a self-motivating thing to satis- you know, to make sure that he felt satisfied. Uh, he was a very driven guy, and I think he, uh, he made that bar very high for himself, and he accomplished a lot in his life. Um, I've got a slide up that talks about all of the holdings that he had in various states around the country by the time that he passed away in 1976. And it reminds me of um, an earlier point in the film where he's talking to Dietrich, and he's, I think, working on the H1 racer or something, and Dietrich's like, well, we've got to run this by Houston. You know, it's it's the law. We have to legally tell them how much money we're spending and on what and all this stuff. He's like, well, fuck that. Just open up a, another division out in California so we don't have to run it by those guys. <laughs> Very libertarian solution, you know, just work around the system however you can. <laughs> hey, that's why uh, that's why people moved out to California so they didn't have to uh, be beholden to the to the the laws passed by uh, Washington D.C. Yeah, and now of course California is is even worse in many respects, right? It's become this sort of socialist paradise. And, oh yeah. Uh, with the uh, Trump election, now they're talking about the the S word, you know, secession, which has until that that uh, occurrence was deemed a racist notion. But now since California is talking about it, it's totally acceptable. I just assume California wants slaves. Isn't that why they're seceding? Well, it's got to (laughs) be. Well, yeah, it's funny. It's a double standard. When Texas talks about it, they're like, oh, yeah, good riddance to all those racists down in Texas. Of course, they only want to secede because of that reason. But, yeah, when California does it, it's because of Trump's a racist and they're not. And Yeah, it's, it's funny. I wanted to mention that Howard Hughes, this isn't in the movie, but Howard Hughes had the kind of, like, fuck you money that allowed him to do, just do whatever he kind of, not exactly, you know, whatever he wanted, but as he was getting more and more eccentric, he would um, just, like, rent out the top couple floors of a hotel for years at a time, so much to the point where, like, the hotel owner would eventually say, you know, it's maybe it's time for you to move on. And he's like, nah, I like it here. And then he'll just, like, <laughs> buy the hotel. Or if the sign... In out from the view of his window, he didn't like it, so he's like, "Hey, you should change that sign." They're like, "No, we like it." And he's like, "Well, I'll just buy your company and then change the sign." I mean, he was just the kind of guy that had the kind of money. He provided so much value that he's able to satisfy his other desires to to a level which most people, and I mean most, like 99.9% of the people on the planet, cannot do. I, I, I listen to Adam Carolla's podcast regularly, and I think that's actually what he would call fuck me money. Like, he's just going to spend money because, you know, fuck me. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, I think we're at the end of our movie. So, uh, John, uh, any final thoughts, your overall summary? We, we give a rating um, similar to a thumbs up, thumbs down. It's black and gold if it's a good movie and black and red if it's kind of a garbage trash movie that can't economically calculate. Oh, this is absolutely a black and gold movie. And, you know, despite uh, the ironic twist that, you know, the, the main character is being played by one of the biggest socialists in Hollywood, Leo, Leo DiCaprio, I mean, I think. It's got a great libertarian message and, uh, you know, it shows the, you know, the true nature of government and what crony capitalism is all about. And the fact that this movie didn't make, didn't seem to get recognized for more for that, for that message, I think is a real travesty. But hopefully this podcast will awaken a lot of people and uh, people will look at it differently in uh, going forward. Yeah, that's a good point. This movie, I don't remember, it got a fair amount of uh, Hollywood attention in a, the land of socialist Hollywood that it is. Um, but yeah, it doesn't really have that kind of weight in the libertarian circles. 
and I think you're right. This is a very strong libertarian movie. DiCaprio plays it pretty well, I thought. Um, Scorsese directed it just fine. I really like Cat Hepburn, played by, what's her name? Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. Yeah, Kate Blanchett. I thought she did a really good job. Uh, she was fun with her accent and all that. Overall, yeah, black and gold for me. Uh, strong. It was, it was fun. It was, it's a, it's a fast three hours. It's not like a super sluggy long three hours. It's quite enjoyable. It still holds up to this day. I mean, it's not that old, but it's, it's, it's starting to age. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a, a fascinating character. And in fact, they probably could have made a longer movie or another movie just about all the different weirdness that he really got into. But as it is, yeah, very strong. Daniel? Yeah, yeah, we didn't even get into a lot of the, the real complications of his disorders, like the, the milk jugs and the sitting naked watching a movie for a month straight, something like that. But yeah, this this is a black and gold movie for me as well. I do think that it was cut down from something much, much bigger, and it was still almost three hours. But there were a few uh, areas in the movie where it kind of felt like it jumped around and you're a bit disoriented uh, in it. Like Eva Gardner, she sort of introduced earlier in the film and then all of a sudden she's like this long-term love interest and it just kind of didn't really work for me it took me a minute to process who who's this person what what is she doing here so i, mm-hmm. I think some of the connecting scenes might have hit the cutting room floor uh because you know a movie that's three hours long is probably hard to, to get through especially when it's a movie that is sort of built for oscar consideration and right. I think it actually did win a few. Um, and, and I'll post some of the information in our show notes page, which will be com slash 33. I've mentioned that a couple of times. Uh, hopefully the poop tube doesn't think that that's too repetitive and flag us for spam on that like they did on our last episode, which we are appealing. And I, I do want to mention that it is weird. They say click to get to this form to do the appeal, and you click on it, and it just infinitely loops to the same like click here to submit an appeal, and then you have, you have to log into your account, and then it gives you a probably 200 character space to write your entire case. <laughs> so we did that. Uh, hopefully our episode will be turned back so it's up. Like, it's, it's like the uh, it's like the garbage container with the suggestion box sign above it. Sounds oh like. yeah, yeah, yeah. Suggestions here, and yeah, put it in the round bin. This will all be round solved button. when neutrality passes. Believe me. I know, right? Yeah, we're we're experiencing what their fear is of net neutrality. And I think it's one of those things, I forget who talks about it. Is it, is it Shapiro or, or maybe McInnes or McGinnis, uh, that these types of SJW and policing activities by Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and the like is going to drive people away from it. And it's going to, it's going to make them suffer and alternatives are going to be, are going to rise out of that, you know, because people are looking for being able to express themselves without being policed and shut down and censored for just ridiculous activities or, you know, like things that, that are normal, like totally fine. Uh, and you see a big double standard in a lot of these things. There there were several stories a few months back about some um, meme sites that were basically taking like progressive memes and twisting them so that they were libertarian. And the progressive memes, memes were permitted to be up, but Anything that was uh, a takeoff on that that was liberta- libertarian or liberty-minded got shut down. So, ridiculous. Yeah, a lot of those websites do have content kind of managers. And, well, you're mostly going to get, like, social justice-type people in those positions. I mean, these are the kind of people that are coming out of the, the universities in these past few years. So, that's what you're going to get. So, yeah. But it does just create a market opportunity for uh Somebody else. Welcome to the marketeers. Yeah, baby. Yeah, I think even Marvel has seen a a backlash on this. This is something we talked about in one of our Wolverine 
episodes where they had a big SJW push where so many of the hero characters were turning into women or the new characters were women. And those storylines and those comic book sales have plummeted. And because of that, the market reaction is, hey, stop doing this because we don't like it. We're not going to buy this crap. And so they're starting to change direction. Well, God forbid you make uh, original female hero superhero characters. I mean, why why not just take existing superheroes and make them into women? Why why bother making original new characters? Yeah, that sounds like work. Let's just turn Thor into a woman, or Captain America into a woman, or Iron Man into or a Dr. woman. Who. Why not? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Doctor Who's the latest one, and people are complaining that it's not a transgendered, Hispanic, black, yeah, disabled right? person who is blind. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, whatever word salad of uh, victim groups you can come up with, apparently being a, a woman is not enough anymore, even though they get a deal on um, the salary they have to pay her, you know, only 77% of what they'd have to pay the male actor. <laughs> It'll be interesting to finally reach the world that all these people will be happy with. Yeah, I don't know if it's ever going to be enough for these people. Well, that, that's critical theory. perpetual victimhood of, yeah, of class theory. Critical theory is, is never be satisfied. That's what it is. They'll never be satisfied. Come on. <laughs> All right, John, tell us, tell us where can people find your show and the work that you do with your partner? And I don't mean in the uh, gay sense. I mean, there's unless, nothing wrong. Even if there's not that there's anything wrong with that. So tell us about your libertarianism for normal people. How can people follow you? Uh, what's the URL? What's the show about? Uh, you, you get a, a five minutes here to drop any knowledge you got. Uh, the website is libertarianismfnp. That's franknancypeter.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Libertarianism for Normal People. Uh, again, we, we try to put out two episodes a week, but uh, life is kind of getting in the way lately. So it's it's been one episode a week uh, lately. Uh, not only do we discuss things like everyday things, try to do everyday things from a libertarian standpoint, but... We also, you know, because Pat's an entrepreneur, he's really interested in helping people kind of achieve their own personal and financial freedom and getting to the point where, you know, they have more choices other than living under the heavy thumb of the, the heavy thumb of government. So there's a lot of added value episodes in there where we try to encourage people or give them advice on starting their own business or, you know, Becoming more creative or, or things like that. We have an episode about creativity coming out this week, which, uh, we hope will be really valuable to, to, to a lot of people. But, you know, it's again, it's, it's speaking to people just in layman's terms and trying to get them to understand the, the, the blessings of liberty and how they can really use it and use their own talents and, and ideas to advance themselves and, uh, Hopefully one day spread the message and get more people interested into realizing that government is more of a problem than it is a solution and trying to find their own way without the, without the heavy hand of government uh, lording over them. Beautiful. Yeah, well, That's I encourage it. everyone to check that out. I've given uh, the show a, a few listens, and I, I think you guys do a really nice job. Um, and, and, Robert, I think you did listen as well, and you were telling me that, that you liked their approach of, uh, sort of a um, introduction type, type style. You know, it's not it's not something you need to be well versed in libertarian ideas to enjoy the show. Yeah, but even if you are well versed in libertarian ideas, I think you can still get a lot of value out of it. They've got some really nice guests on there, and I don't know how how, how far in advance do you guys come up with your uh, show ideas. Do you kind of respond to the news, or what do you just get some ideas? Yeah, I gotta tell you, it's like it's it's me going over to Pat's house and and us saying, well, what are we going to talk about today? And uh, you know, so a lot of times I'll 
I'll read an article that really irks me or, you know, here's, here's some comment. A lot of our inspiration comes from our Facebook page comments and uh, people oh, yeah. who, who wanted the trolls who want to argue with us on certain points. And it kind of inspires us to do entire episodes around those comments. So it's, I'd like to say it's it's well planned out in advance with a lot of thought put into it, but a lot of times it's just us deciding that morning what we're going to talk about and just letting the microphone roll. Yeah, well, that, those, some of those comments can really get you fired up. It's like yeah. some good content for sure. Definitely. Yeah, it's sort of how we started out too with our show. It was really just us recording our conversations that we were having anyway, and then we sort of stumbled into we end up talking about movies quite a bit, so maybe we just play that angle up, and here we are today. We actually do a little bit more prep work than we used to, mostly because we want to provide value for, for our listeners and hopefully gain some supporters. So, you know, this is our first episode with a slide deck in the background for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we watch the movie. We take notes. We're working on coming up with, with awards that or rewards. I forget what you'd call it on Patreon, but like different levels, different tiers of support. So you get different goodies for supporting us at different prices. Uh, John, do you guys have a Patreon as well? Like how can people support you? Do you have like affiliate links and things like that? What kinds of things do you guys promote on your site? Yeah, we're actually not on Patreon right now, but if anybody wants to send me money, uh, you can definitely go to the page and uh, contact me via the email address. I'd be more than happy to accept your, your cash. Um, but yeah, we're, we're kind of just like starting out. Pat has a lot of ideas about how, you know, like uh, affiliate marketing and, and things like that. We're hoping to start a course eventually, hopefully by the end of the year, that's more comprehensive as far as, you know, teaching people how they can start their own online business or at least get in, get a little more entrepreneurial. So, you know, look, keep an eye out for that. If you follow us on Facebook, we'll definitely be announcing that when it's ready. But other than that, we're, we're just kind of like uh, just keeping it going and see uh, see where we can go with it. Uh, but, you know, eventually we'll probably be on things like Patreon and, and things like that. So just keep following us. We'll, you'll, you'll be up to date on everything. Yeah, it's just most most things for us. It's a work in progress on our end as well. Uh, we've got the website, actuallyanarchy.com. We also have readrothbar.com, conquestofbed.com. And for affiliate stuff, we have Amazon links. We've got Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom. We've got a service called readit4.me. And uh, that might be something that I um, share more information with you on because it's really cool. They take a couple hundred like business and, and self-improvement entrepreneurial type books and they summarize them down into 12 minute uh, snippets. So like the entire book, you can ingest the main ideas in 12 minutes and they get audio, video and a written um, like book report style thing. Mm -hmm. And so you get like the key points and it's a way to, to people are busy, right? You, you don't have time to sit down and read a 300 page book, but you probably can find 10, 15 minutes in a day to uh, take a listen to this stuff. So it's, it, it, I find it pretty valuable. I don't use it as much as I would like to because I have so many things on my list, but it is a, a pretty neat service and it's something that we push on our site and we've actually gotten a few sales out of it. So we've seen a little bit of traction there. We've got the Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash readrothpod. I just added a bunch of tiers to that and we're trying to figure out which goodies to assign to that, like I was telling you. But yeah, that's pretty much what we've been trying to do. And, and we don't envision like earning a, a living off of doing this. We just, we look at it as if somebody chooses to support us through any of those various means, it just means that they like what we're doing. It's, it's really just a motivator at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really all we're hoping for at this point. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a lot of good advice. And it sounds like you guys are doing really well. So. Uh, kudos to all of you for uh, for doing such a good job. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you for being our guest on the Actual Anarchy podcast, talking about the aviator for our episode number 33. 
to get you guys on our show as well. So we, we definitely have to do that. Yeah, I think we'd like to do that. We, we've been on two interviews so far, and I feel like I was a deer in headlights in both because <laughs> our show is more conversational and it's about something else, not about ourselves, really. But uh, when we get pointed questions, I, I get a little bit like, ah, ah. But Robert handles it really well, so he covers for me. So when, okay. when we are on, make sure it's both of us. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good, man. We'd love All to right. come on. All right. Well, thanks, yeah. Thanks I'd for like being to... on this episode. Go ahead, Daniel. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to thank our audience for, for listening and, and do support us and Libertarianism for Normal People. Check out their site. Check out their show. Uh, click on any of our Amazon links, Liberty Classroom links, Read It For Me links. And uh, we also have Principal Propaganda, which is Liberty-inspired merchandise, T-shirts, mugs, etc. Uh, you can find out more about us and the show at actualanarchy.com slash 33. And uh, I wish you guys a, a very good evening. Thank you much, very much for joining us, and I'll turn it over to Robert. Before we potentially hit overdrive where we're going to end the show and continue on for just a bit longer for our patreon people are we going to do that that's exciting um yeah thanks for listening everybody i'm just going to reiterate what everybody said uh thanks john for coming on it was a great episode and uh be safe and be free everybody uh, you know live life take care of yourself see you guys Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do